Well, good morning. Um, uh, for those of you I haven't, I haven't had the opportunity to, man, I've had the opportunity to be out here a few times uh, to preach over the last few years. Uh, it's good to see you. Um, it's good to be back. Um, our family recently moved back to the area. We were in Virginia for about three years and, and moved back. And so um, Pastor Eric took the opportunity to ask, hey, while you're back, would you come preach? And I said, yes. And he was like, hey, we'll make it real easy for you. Uh, your text is in the book of Revelation. I'm like, oh, Great. Um, so uh, we are going to be uh, covering a lot of ground this morning. If you do have your Bibles with you, we're going to be in Revelation 6. We're going to start there. We're going to make our way through Revelation 6, all the way through chapter 6, 7, and then five verses into chapter 8. Um, the reason why is because the, even though it covers a lot of ground, this is one literary unit in the book of Revelation. And um, while you're turning there, I want to just pray for God's help, um, and then we will jump in. Uh, Father, we thank you for your word. Um, and even though the book of Revelation is not one that we often gravitate toward in our, in our daily devotions, Lord, we, we know that this is your word, it is inspired, and because you've communicated it to us, you've com communicated it clearly. Um, the meaning of this book is not some cryptic meaning that we have to dig hard to find. The meaning is found in the text itself, and so God, as, the, as we read through the book of Revelation, may we see Christ um, exalted and lifted up, ruling and reigning over creation and carrying out his plan to redeem all things. God, we want to be encouraged as your people while we read this morning. And God, as I preach, uh, I pray for your help. God, if there's anything that I've prepared that just isn't for uh, your people, Lord, help me to forget it. Um, and Lord, if there's, something that, um, if there's something for us in this text, which I believe there is, God, would you help us to pay attention? Give us ears to hear what we would never be able to hear on our own, eyes to see what we would never be able to see on our own so that we might become who we could never be on our own. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, so this morning uh, we are gonna be looking at visions um, in the book of Revelation. Uh, these visions are often called the seven sealed judgments. And so one of the interesting things about the book is if you kind of read through the book of Revelation consecutively starting in chapter one, um, and you're, you're listening to any sort of dialogue about the book that's been had from teachers or scholars or anybody that's kind of read through the book in history, uh, you'll see a lot of agreement happening in chapters one through five. There's, there's disagreement about some things, but then when you turn the page to chapter six, it just gets a little wild. Um, there's a lot of different takes on the book of Revelation. There have been throughout church history. Um, and, and what that means then is any any person who is taking the task of studying the book of Revelation needs to do so first with humility. And so we want to come to the text this morning um, with humility, asking God to reveal for us what he has here in the text. And we'll see visions of horsemen, right? We'll see um, this, this passage about martyrs that seem to be sitting under the heavenly altar of God, crying out for God to exercise judgment on those who are rebelling against him. We'll see this group of 144,000 witnesses We'll see descriptions of a, this violent and dramatic upheaval of all creation leading to the deaths of many. We'll see these four living creatures, which is calling back from the heavenly throne room vision in chapters four and five. And we'll see an angel taking the fire from the altar of the prayers of the saints, hurling that fire to the earth. I think everyone can agree that the book of Revelation is quite an entertaining spectacle to, to behold, whether we know what it means or not. The language is vivid, the imagery is, is, is very complex, and any modern reader of the book is often left confused about what the book means and its purpose 
as it closes the story of our Bibles, right? We can like look through these visions and just be like, why is this here? Like, what does it mean? And some of us might question the point of its placement in the biblical story. And the sheer volume of various perspectives that people have on this leaves us wondering if anyone can really know what the Apostle John is trying to tell God's people as he communicates these visions that were given to him by the Lord Jesus. And here's the, the, the helpful tip for us this morning. Revelation 1 tells us that this is the revelation of Jesus Christ, the revealing of Jesus Christ, which tells us one thing. In all that we read, we should be able to see Christ. And so if we can get through Revelation 6 through 8 and see Christ, we're doing good work. But as G.K. Chesterton rightly observes, he says this. He says, and though St. John, the evangelist, saw many strange monsters in his vision, he saw no creature so wild as one of his own commentators. This book is shrouded with mystery, speculation, and theory, and I hope this morning that instead of looking to speculation and mystery and theory, we would actually find encouragement in this text. That where speculation might lead one to look at the, uh, and see that the revelation, the, the revelation of St. John reveals very little about our current life and experience, may we actually look and see that John is giving to us very clear heavenly commentary on our earthly experience, suffering and difficulty that you and I see and experience every single day, that woven through the fabric of these visions is actually practical help for God's people today so that we can see Christ at work in the world in the midst of a life where we are constantly tempted to compromise, constantly tempted to fold. I'm sure Pastor Eric has told you over the last few weeks as you guys have been making your way through the book of Revelation that the point of the book of Revelation is this. It's to provide heavenly commentary on earthly realities. Okay, In Revelation, God is actually unveiling the curtain, as it were, on his perspective of the state of things between the resurrection of Jesus and his return. It's giving to us God's perspective on what has been happening, what is happening, and what will happen while we wait for Jesus to return. And the unveiling of, of, of what God is up to um, exposes for us an aspect of God's work that often leaves us very unsettled as his people. Judgment. We know that evil exists in the world, right? So no, no matter what position you take on God's judgment, all of us at some level understand the necessity of judgment. No one in here would be happy if a serial killer walked into a courtroom, received a guilty verdict, and walked out with no consequences. We would see that as unjust, and we would see that as a reason to grieve, as a reason to lament. And yet, many of the same kinds of people who might call for judgment for that man are the same kinds of people who hide behind words like, don't judge me, or accusations against others of being too judgmental when they call out something in your life where you've been maybe rightfully wrong about something. A friend of mine has pointed out that one of the helpful things about the book of Revelation is it actually corrects our perspective of judgment. And so if we want a biblical framework, a biblical understanding of what it means for God to be judged, Revelation gives us a very clear picture of what that looks like and why that's good news. And if we believe this is the word of God, which it is, then we must be willing to submit to what God has revealed about himself. And as we behold Christ in the book of Revelation, especially today, what you will see is that we have a God who both punishes the wicked and purifies the righteous. He punishes the wicked 
and he purifies his people. And he often does it at the same time using the same means to do so. So let's read. We're going to start in uh, verse 1. I'm going to go through 1 through 8. We're going to talk about a few things. And then we're going to kind of, we're not going to work our way completely like 6, 7, 8. We're actually going to go chapter 6. We're going to jump real quick over to chapter 8. And then we're going to come back and finish out in chapter 7. So let's start in verse uh, 1 of chapter 6. John writes, Then I saw the Lamb open one of the seven seals. And I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come. I looked and there was a white horse. Its rider held a bow. A crown was given to him. And he went out as a conqueror in order to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. Then another horse went out, a fiery red one. And its rider was allowed to take peace from the earth so that people would slaughter one another, and a large sword was given to him. When he opened the third seal, I heard a third living creature say, Come. And I looked, and there was a black horse. Its rider had a set of scales in his hand. And then I heard something like a voice among the four living creatures say, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, but do not harm the oil and the wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. And I looked, and there was a pale green horse. Its rider was named Death, and Hades following after him. They were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill by the sword, by famine, by plague, and by the wild animals of the earth. Life is painstakingly difficult at times, isn't it? Whether you're a Christian or not, we can all agree that there is no shortage of pain, tragedy, and hardship that we experience in life. And you don't need to be a Christian to feel the sting of death either. It isn't a stretch of our imagination to see things like inflation, famine, war, and disease as difficult. And whether you see yourself as a Christian or not, these things create hardship for all of us. Right, And we don't even, here's the thing, we don't even have to experience like a, like a really great extreme example of these. Right, Just like a little glimpse of famine and we start freaking out. Right, like I remember when we moved here, um, uh, Costco had a shortage on the, the like Kirkland brand formula that we were using for our kids, which is like half price of any of the other formulas. So we weren't even out of formula. Our kid could still have something to eat. But like the particular brand that we wanted, there was a shortage of. Just a, just a little small glimpse of famine. And our family just started freaking out, right? So we, we feel these, these things like inflation or famine or war or disease as difficult. And we don't even need to have a, a full measure of it. And it creates hardship for us. And if we're honest, sometimes we freak out. And often the way that we respond to hardship is we despair. We despair, right? We magnify the difficulty. We make the difficulty so large that we can't see anything else. We lose sight of any hope of escape. We shut out the world around us. And the pain can be so debilitating that even rolling out of bed in the morning becomes one of the most difficult aspects of our day. Simple joys disappear. And in these moments, maybe you've experienced this in your own life when you've been like depressed or, or in despair, the counsel of a friend, like once you get there, becomes really helpful. Because what does a counsel of a friend do when you're in despair? Well, they, they, they kind of lift your eyes. They help you kind of get an actual perspective of what's going on. You get perspective of what's actually happening, not your limited perspective as you're in despair, just focusing on everything terrible going on around you. 
They give you a little bit of perspective of what's actually happening so you can no longer be led to despair, but actually have some hope, right? That maybe God is at work in the midst of your suffering, in the midst of your hardship, and maybe he's doing something that's actually for your good in the midst of the pain of the moment. When our reflex in suffering is despair, it actually makes sense that God would provide us in the form of the book of Revelation, a vivid image of perspective. What God is doing in the midst of our suffering, he's lifting our chins to help us see what is going on around us, what God is doing in the midst of it, so that we might be encouraged. And the first thing that we see in this text is very, very simple. Calling back to Psalm 2, we see that while the nations rage, God accomplishes his will. In Psalm chapter 2, if you're familiar with Psalm 2, it begins with a question. The psalmist writes, he says, why do the nations rage? And the people plot in vain. The psalm continues in verse 2 to answer the question, saying that the the kings of the earth, the rulers of this world, have actually set themselves against the Lord and against his anointed. Which, if if you're familiar with the Old Testament imagery of the anointed, this is God's king. Pointing to the line of David, which eventually culminates in the person of Christ, whom you saw last week as John heard in the vision, the lion of the tribe of Judah. And he turned and he saw what? A lamb who was standing as if slain with seven horns on his head to to show Jesus' complete authority and, and lordship over all creation as the king of all kings. But the question is, while Jesus reigns, why do the nations still rage? The nations, which is a way of speaking of the people of the earth, are opposed to God. This is huge. We have to get this into our hearts. Right? If we believe that in, in, in original sin, meaning that each of us, when we are born in this world, we are born under sin, then we have to see that, that what the Bible reveals is true. There are only two kinds of people in all the earth. Two. Those who submit to God in his ways in faith and are called righteous as his people because of what Jesus has done, forgiving them of their sin and calling them out of darkness. And those who stand opposed to God. There are only two kinds of people in this world, those who oppose God and those who are united to God in faith. And in Revelation, the nations, the rulers of this world, the kings of the earth, whether they are aware of it or not, set themselves against the Lord and against Christ as they work tirelessly to accomplish their ends. They work in vain. Because as Revelation shows us, they work against God himself. This is seen throughout the seven seal judgments. If you remember kind of looking at the context of Revelation, the, 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 the vision in chapter four shows an ascended Jesus. Basically, it's giving us a heavenly perspective of what Jesus did as soon as he ascended into heaven. Right? He takes his place next to God. John, the, 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 John is crying as he's looking at the vision because there's this scroll that's sealed with seven seals. No one can open it. Who's worthy to open the scroll? We just sang about it. And then John hears the lion of the tribe of Judah. He looks, he sees this lamb standing as if he was slain. And what we see in Revelation 6 is that lamb being Jesus. It's a symbolic way of describing who Jesus is to point out the significance of Jesus, not just the person of Jesus. Takes the scroll from the hand of God, starts to open up the seals to show that Jesus himself has the authority to carry out God's plan of redemption. That's what's happening when we look at the seven seals. We have to keep that in mind. So, He starts to open the scroll. And you see in each of these, it says this. It cites one of the living creatures that's around the throne with a voice like thunder. Why? Because these horsemen, these judgments are coming from the throne of God himself. 
That's important perspective for us. All of the, this, is not, this is not something that is the product of, of, of the enemy. This is actually something that is carrying out God's very judgment with the authority of God himself. So, the first of these four seals gives us four horsemen. A white horse, a red horse, a black horse, and a a green pale horse. The red horse is symbolizing enmity between people and war. Now let me ask you a question. Any reader of history, any person who can just look at not just the past 50 years, but let's go the past 1,000 years, can see history is often shaped by what? Human conflict. So war is something that's been happening for a long time. That's important for us to keep in mind as we look at this. What else? A black horse symbolizing famine. Think of this as a lack of basic resources. And as John points out, as you start to see the prices of food, he talks about the prices of food in this third seal, right? A quart of wheat, which is a day's wage, and then three quarts of barley for a day's wage. So food prices are going up. This is talking about famine. So we have war, we have famine, and the inflation that comes as a product of famine, which you and I experience every time we go to the grocery store right now, right? A measure of that. And a green pale horse depicting death. And what this is, is this is the consequence coming as a result of disease, primarily, war, famine, and he even talks about wild beasts, upheaval in creation. This is actually calling back to uh, a passage in Leviticus where God is actually telling the Israelites if they do not uphold the law, they're going to experience God's judgment in the form of war, disease, famine, and wild beasts, which is basically creation itself as it's under enmity from God, as it's groaning, as we sang about, is gonna lash out against humanity, right? Some of you have heard a perspective of the book of Revelation that everything in this book is happening sometime in the future, right? But think about this with me, just for a moment. Think about the news articles that are hitting your headlines right now. Right now, the history books you've read, war, famine, disease, and death are the story of human history since Jesus walked out of the tomb. Every day we see wars, we see famine, we, we see disease, we see tragic disasters, and such upheaval can leave us in a position of asking, what in the world is God doing? What's he doing? How is he at work in the midst of all this? And what Revelation tells us is in the midst of all of these things that God's people have been experiencing from the time that Jesus walked out of the tomb and will experience until he returns, is that God is carrying out judgment on those who have rejected Christ and leveraging that same difficulty to purify his people as they continue to proclaim Christ as risen throughout the earth. You may have noticed that I have not explained who the white horse is, who's first. There's only one other place in Revelation that speaks of a white horse. It's in chapter 19, and it says this. Then I saw heaven opened, and there was a white horse. Its rider was called Faithful and True. And with justice, he judges and makes war his Eyes were like a fiery flame. Now, where have we heard somebody's eyes like a fiery flame? Sounds like Revelation 1. When John heard a voice like a trumpet, and he turned and saw a picture of the glorified risen Christ who had eyes like flames of fire. 
And many crowns were on his head, and a name was written that no one knows except himself. He wore a robe dipped in blood. Like who? The lamb of chapter 4 who was slain. And his name is called the word of God. Who's this talking about? It's Jesus. This white horse is the resurrected Christ. He is going out to conquer through the proclamation of the gospel in this fallen world. As person after person after person hears the good news of Christ and responds in faith and repentance. And at the same time, as he's doing this, he's the white horse leading the way as God's peop- God pours out judgment on the earth through the other horsemen. Every soul, every person in this world is confronted with the way that they, like the nations of Psalm 2, have stood opposed to the Lord and his Christ. And every soul that looks to the cross of Christ in faith will be purified. Do you see that? Think about this. The very things that God is using to judge the world, he is also using to purify his people. Now, where have we seen this before? Think about the Exodus story with me for a moment. The instrument of judgment on Egypt was the instrument of deliverance for the Israelites, wasn't it? It's the same thing. God split the sea. Israel walked through the sea, and God judged his enemies. Deliverance and judgment through the same means, the judgment of God being poured out on creation, led by a victorious and conquering Christ. This can make us very, very uncomfortable, can't it? Because what this tells us is at some measure, the most painful things of our life have been ordained by God in some way, shape, or form. Now, if we have a perspective on this, we, we, we could look at it and say, well, that, that bothers me. Like, how could Christ really be involved in the most painful things of our life? But if we take a step back and we look, we should be comforted. Why? Because God himself is actually intimately involved in the most painful experiences in your, in your life. They're not meaningless. They're not purposeless. They're meant for something. God is doing something in them. As Romans tells us, he's working in you a peculiar glory. He's making you more like Jesus. As a result of those things, again, he's punishing the wicked. He's purifying the righteous. And the image of the white horse tells us that no matter what's going on in this world, God will guarantee accomplish his will. He will accomplish his will. There is no power, no might, no war, no famine, no amount of death. In fact, Jesus himself tells the apostles what? The gates of hell cannot prevail against the plan of God, the progression of the gospel, and the growing of the church. So these horsemen are expressing judgment on the world as the people of the earth reject Christ and live under the active judgment of God, which means this. This is important. The horsemen have been running since Jesus walked out of the tomb. They are running now, and they will run until Jesus returns. That's the point of this passage. And how do we know that? Because Jesus himself in Matthew 24 describes to the disciples exactly what's gonna happen to them as soon as Jesus rises out of the tomb and ascends to the heavens. Do you know what he talks about in Matthew 24? He talks about wars and rumors of wars. He talks about famines. He talks about disease. He talks about suffering. He talks about the rulers of this world rejecting his, his disciples because they've rejected Christ. And in Matthew 24, Jesus actually gives us a summary of these four horsemen. And he tells the disciples they're coming now. But notice how these four horsemen are only given. Look at, look at, um, look at the fourth seal in verse 8. 
they were given authority over only a fourth of the earth. Now, like we could read this and we could think like, okay, so they only have authority over 25% of the population. That's not what John is doing here, right? Remember, everything in John's revelation is a symbol pointing to something else. And there are many numbers that are used in revelation. They all point to the same thing. Four, seven, and 12, and sometimes even 10, all point to this idea of completeness. So when John is saying a part of four, he's simply saying that the, the authority is limited. This is a limited degree of authority. So don't think of this as literally 25% of the planet all dying at once. Think of this as John's way of saying that God's judgment as we experience it in this life is measured. It has a lid, right? Now, how do we know that? Because later we're gonna see the angels say, like, don't harm the earth until God's people are redeemed. Right, so even there, we're gonna see that at some level, God's active judgment that we're experiencing right now is gonna be limited. It's gonna have a, a lid on it. The kingdom of God has not and will not come in its fullness until Christ returns. And in the meantime, a lowercase j judgment is felt by all while we wait for the capital J judgment of God to come when Christ returns. During this time, God is simultaneously punishing the wicked and purifying the righteous. This is why the fifth seal shows the saints depicted like martyrs who've been slain by the wicked for the word of God and the testimony that they have been given. Look at, look at verse nine with me. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who've been slaughtered because of the word of God and the testimony that they have given. They cried out with a loud voice, Lord, the only one who is holy and true, how long will you judge those who live on the earth and avenge our blood? So they were each given a white robe. Now, what does this make you think of? It should make you think of Revelation 3, when Jesus promises a white robe to those who conquer and endure in the midst of the present suffering. So they're given a white robe. They're told to wait a little longer until the number would be completed of their fellow servants and their brothers and sisters who were going to be killed just as they had been. While there have been many who've been killed for the faith, I don't think that these are just the cries of those who have died for their faith. These aren't just cries for the martyrs. Remember, everything in the book of Revelation is a symbol pointing to something else. So what is John doing? John is taking the most extreme measure of suffering that he can think of, being martyred and killed for the faith, and using it to make a point about Christian suffering. He's trying to make a point that all Christians, no matter where you are, no matter what you're going through, you're going to experience a degree of suffering between the resurrection of Jesus and his return. Everything in the seals is pointing to something that, that John is saying, and John is taking Christian suffering to its most extreme place to make this point. Between the resurrection and the return, as God's judgment is being poured out on the wicked, his people will suffer to a degree. But again, you have to keep in mind the presence of the white horse. The gospel's still gonna go forward. And in fact, if you read through the book of Acts, right, which is describing the progression of the church, God is often using as a means of the progression of the gospel, the suffering of God's people. So God's people start to suffer in Jerusalem and then what happens? They scatter and they spread into other towns. They start telling other people about Jesus and the gospel reaches the ends of the earth by the time you get to the end of the book of Acts. It gets to the capital of Rome, which is the center of all society at that time, and it's assumed that it's gonna go out to the ends of the earth. The same thing that caused suffering for the Christians actually led to the, 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 the progression and the growing and the success of the church. Listen to Jesus' words in Matthew 24. They sound so eerily familiar to these seal judgments. 
Jesus replied to them, watch out that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name saying I am the Messiah and will deceive many. You are going to hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed. Friends, you are hearing right now of wars and rumors of wars. What is Jesus saying? Do not be alarmed. Do not be surprised. Do not freak out. See that you are not alarmed because these things must take place, Jesus says. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines, earthquakes in various places. All these events are the beginning of the labor pains. Remember, Jesus said these words 2,000 years ago. Just a few years after Jesus would say this, Rome would go into the city of Jerusalem and absolutely eradicate the temple. Is Jesus talking about that? Yes, he is. He's absolutely talking about what happened and what the Jews experienced as Rome came into Jerusalem and destroyed the temple and displaced thousands of Jewish people with war. We also know, right, that a a, a group, right, Hamas, just absolutely attacked Israel and there's now crazy amounts of war happening in Israel right now. Is Jesus talking about that here? Yes, Well, how can he be talking about a war that happened in 70 AD and a war that happened now? Because Jesus is talking about everything that happened between the time he walked out of the tomb and when he returns. And that experience will happen over and over and over and over again until Jesus comes back. Now, listen, in the midst of all of this crazy stuff happening, wars, rumors of wars, famines, earthquakes, creation, upheaval, the beginning of the the birth pains, what does he tell his disciples? They will hand you over to be persecuted. They will kill you. You will be hated by all nations because of my name. Then many will fall away and betray one another. Now, let me ask you, have you seen many people in the church fall away and betray other Christians? Yeah. Fall away and betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. Have you ever seen anybody use and twist the word of God for their own benefit and for the destruction of others? Absolutely. Absolutely, and they've been doing it since Jesus walked out of the tomb. In fact, most of Paul's letters in the New Testament are addressing what? False teaching. And most of the creeds and confessions that have come up through church history, these great, amazing declarations of what we believe about the scriptures have actually been a product of correcting false teaching in the church. Again, something, false teaching, creating suffering for God's people and yet purifying them, the church articulating what it believes about something. Because lawlessness will multiply, this is still Jesus in Matthew 24. Because lawlessness will multiply, the love of many will grow cold. Have you ever met a Christian who's bored with their faith? They're bored. Their love has grown cold. Rather than the longer they go with Jesus, their love becoming a deeper and deeper flame within their heart. Their love grows calloused and cold. But the one who endures to the end That sounds like John in Revelation 2 and 3, doesn't it? These are the words of Jesus in Matthew 24. The one who endures to the end will be saved. Now think of that paragraph I just read and listen to how Jesus himself summarizes it. This good news. Does that sound like good news? 
Yes, it does. Because what it shows us is that the king of kings has the world in the palm of his hand and he will accomplish his purposes. This good news of the kingdom will be proclaimed in all the world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. Have you ever, you know, most of us think about the proclamation of the gospel, the good news of Jesus being risen as good news for me because it saves me from my sins. And Jesus says that here, but he also describes it in a a way that we're not used to hearing it. He describes it as an indictment against the nations. The proclamation of the gospel is both good news for us, but it's also an indictment to the nations who again, as Psalm 2 says, has set themselves against the Lord and against his anointed. What this shows us is that while suffering persists, God will protect his people. This is good news for you and for me, that while suffering persists, this is what I love about the book of Revelation. It just says what is. And you can't really argue with it because it is accurately in just a few verses summing up the whole of human history. And it's saying why, and it's saying that's not beyond the reach of God. In fact, God is leveraging that suffering for judgment against the nations and the purification of his own people. And notice how the suffering long for God to judge the earth. Look at what they say. They say, how long until you judge those who live on the earth and avenge our blood? God, when are you going to fight for us? When is the suffering going to end? And this isn't like Christian bloodlust for their enemies. No, no, no. This is them expressing their, their full submission to God. They're looking at his promises and they're asking, God, when are you going to fulfill your promises? When are we not going to suffer anymore? When is Christ going to come? It reminds us that God is actually guaranteeing protection to all who die in suffering for the sake of Christ, whether they're killed for their faith as martyrs or suffer as they just remain faithful in a godless age. But what it also shows us is, don't you see the, 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 these martyrs taking great comfort in God's judgment? Isn't that interesting? Have you ever thought of God's judgment as comforting? That every person who ever made fun of you for the sake of your faith is actually going to get what's coming to them. And you're not going to play a part in it. Because what we tend to do is we tend to step into the role of judge, don't we? And we try to make sure they get it now. No, no, no. We pray for their repentance now because we've experienced a Savior who, while we stood condemned, Christ died for the ungodly. That while we stood guilty before the eyes of God, Christ died for us. So when we look to our enemies, we don't ask God to rain fire on them like John and James did on the Samaritans. We ask God to rescue them, to save them, to redeem them. Why? Because we know that even though now God's judgment has a lid on it, one day it won't anymore. And the full weight of God's wrath will be poured out over all creation. And every single person on earth will give allegiance to Jesus. And they will do it either in joy at his coming or terror at his coming. God's waiting is an expression of his mercy. Right? Think again of the white horse. As judgment's being carried out, the gospel's being proclaimed throughout all the earth. And what do you see in the fifth seal? You see, wait a little longer, he says. I'm not done saving people, he says. There's more to be saved. There are disciples yet to be made, lost people who have yet to be found. And every person that, this is encouraging because every single person that you reach for Christ, you, 
all of you reach for Christ, put you one step closer to Jesus returning. Think about that. You want Christ to return? Preach the gospel. Proclaim the gospel. Tell others of the good news. Tell your friends. Tell your neighbors. Tell your extended family. Tell everyone. Because every person, one to the faith, is another step closer to Christ returning. Don't think of every day being another day closer. Think of every soul being another soul closer to Christ coming. Because he's waiting He's waiting. Judgment is limited until the full number of the fellow servants, the brothers and sisters, would be completed. When others reject you, what this tells us is that God receives you. He knows your suffering. He knows your pain. If they make you suffer, we know that even the worst suffering only expedites our comfort. Because the scriptures tell us that once we die, we're in the presence of the king. And when he returns, we'll return with him. He'll return with an army of foot soldiers proclaiming and preaching the good news of the gospel, pointing at the king who reigns over all things while he restores all things, judges all evil, and establishes his kingdom. So do not live your lives as if Christ has been defeated, sheeplessly hiding, sheepishly hiding in fear of suffering. Live your lives as those who actually believe what the scriptures teach. That Christ has redeemed you, that Christ has defeated the enemy, that Christ has made you alive, that Christ is building his church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. What this tells us is this. Do you want to see this church grow? Do you want to see this community reached? Hell itself can't stop you. It can't stop you. That's good news. And even the worst things that this world could throw at you will only serve to make the gospel go out. It'll only turn the volume of the gospel in the community up, not down. And while God judges the earth, he offers redemption, friends. He's judging the earth now. There's lowercase j judgment happening now, and yet he's holding out redemption. Jesus says, this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout all the world as a testimony to all nations. The good news of Christ is a promise to save the wicked who repent and a testimony against the wicked who resist. Some of you in here have yet to confess Jesus as Lord. And though you've heard the good news of God over and over, that there was a man named Christ who came to save sinners, you're resisting, you're fighting that. You don't submit to Christ, you don't look to Christ's death to cleanse you from your sin. You don't believe that Christ rose from the grave. And friend, I want to warn you that your resistance will come to a tipping point because one day, whether you believe him or not, you're going to see Jesus face to face. And the question I have for you is this. Will you see him with joy or will you see him with terror? Because you were told he was coming and you did not listen. Listen to the sixth seal. Then I saw him open the sixth seal. A violent earthquake occurred. The sun turned black like sackcloth. This is all Old Testament imagery to refer to the day of the Lord. So that's important. This is, this is pointing forward to the final day when God will judge the earth. That's what this seal is talking about. Listen. The entire moon will become like blood. The stars of heaven fell from the earth as a fig tree drops its unripe figs. And when shaken by high wind, the sky was split apart like a scroll being rolled up. And every mountain and island was moved from its place. This is, this is John's way of saying final judgment is happening. It's coming. 
And what will the kings, the nations who rage against the Lord and his anointed, how will they respond on this day? Look at verse 15. Then the kings of the earth, the nobles, the generals, the rich, the powerful, and every slave and free person. So he touches every demographic of person here. It's not just the powerful. It's anyone who has rebelled against the Lord and his anointed. And they said to the mountains and the rocks. First, they, they hid in the caves and, the, and among the rocks, in the mountains. And then they said to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of the one seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. So is John actually saying that the kings of the earth are going to go run into the mountains, going to hide in caves, and going to ask and beg that creation itself kills them? No. John is actually quoting from Hosea chapter 10. And in Hosea chapter 10, Hosea is prophesying against the wicked, and he is saying that when faced with judgment, the idolaters of Hosea's age will respond with this phrase. They will hide in the caves in the mountains. They will, they will cry out to creation, asking creation to fall on them. So what is, what is John actually doing? Well, he's telling us the problem. The kings and the rulers have set themselves against the Lord and against his anointed because they're idolaters in their heart. In the same way that Hosea prophesied against idolaters in Hosea chapter 10, John is saying, here's the problem with the kings. Here's the problem with the wicked. They're idolaters. They do not submit themselves to the Lord and to his anointed. And so in dread, they ask for creation itself to kill them rather than face God. Look at, look at how it ends. Because the great day of their wrath has come. He says, fall on us, hide us from the face of the one seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Because the great day of their wrath has come. The day of the Lord is here, and who is able to stand? Listen to how the, the, the seventh seal, which, by the way, j- just so you know how these judgments work, you have three series of seven. You have the seven seals, the seven trumpets, and the, the seven bowls. And what I want you to think of these as is like little Rus- Russian nesting dolls, okay? Because within the seventh seal are the seven trumpets, and within the seven trumpets are the seven bowls. And all three of them end with the same language talking about the day of the Lord. And I think you might have heard Eric use the analogy of, of an instant replay in football. You can think of these three series of sevens like an instant replay taking the, the diamond of God's judgment and turning it and looking at it from a different perspective, calling out different aspects of the Old Testament to point to the significance of what God is doing in his judgment. So the seven seals, seven trumpets, and seven bowls are not three separate consecutive events of God's judgment. It's all talking about the same thing, looking at it from a different perspective, Okay. And all of them end with this great day of the Lord that you see in seal six and in seal seven. Listen to the seventh seal. It says, when he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about a half hour. I'm in, I'm in chapter eight. Then I saw seven angels who stand in the presence of God. Seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel with a golden incense burner came and stood at the altar. So this is like, picture the heavenly temple of God. Revelation earlier talks about the prayers of the saints being burned as incense on this altar. And what this angel does, he takes fire from that altar and he hurls it at the earth. Now, what it, why, is, why is John in the sixth seal and the seventh seal talking about judgment in two different ways? Again, it's perspective. In the seventh seal, he's giving us a heavenly perspective on God's judgment. Why is God judging the earth? God is judging the earth in response to the prayers of his people, calling out for God to save them and rescue them and rid the world of evil. He's taking the prayers of the altar, the prayers of the saints who are suffering, and hurling it at the earth. He's punishing the wicked for the ways that they've rejected God's people. Now go back to chapter 6 and look who is responding to God's judgment there, the kings and the rulers of the earth. So in the sixth seal, you get earthly perspective at the day of the Lord. 
And in the seventh seal, you get heavenly perspective at the day of the Lord. Why is it doing this? To show you an all-encompassing view of what God is doing. So you can get into the mind of God, as it were, and get into the mind of the idolatrous, wicked king, ruler, rebel, who sees that the day of the wrath has come and is trying to hide in the same way that Adam and Eve tried to hide in the garden after they sinned. What's it showing us? It's showing us the problem hasn't changed, guys. You and I have been trying to hide in the shame of our sin away from the face of God since Genesis 3. And when the day of the Lord comes, those who stand opposed to the Lord will do the same. They will try to hide from the face of God. Except that day, God will not be coming to save. He will be coming to judge. Now, in these three series of sevens, seals, trumpets, bowls, there's a pause in all of them. Think of it like an interlude, as it were. And what that interlude is for is it's basically to give perspective uh, on the church. So here's what God is doing, seven seals. Revelation chapter seven, we're gonna pause. How then shall the church live? That's the question that all of these interludes are trying to do. Okay, as God's people, we're seeing this, we're seeing God's judgment, how are we to respond? Well, look at the end of chapter six, verse 17. These kings, these rulers, these wicked people are responding. They, They see the great day of wrath and they ask a question. Who is able to stand? Chapter seven answers that question. Remember, something that happens in Revelation is John will often hear something, won't he? And he'll turn and look and it'll be something different. Right, so listen to chapter seven. After this I looked, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth. Anytime you see this, all all, all that John is trying to do is to show the cosmic authority of what's happening. The angels are standing over the the fullness of the earth, the four corners of the earth. They're, They're everywhere on the earth. There's not an inch of creation that isn't touched by this authority. But they're restraining the four winds. This is calling back to God's judgment. This is God's judgment being restrained by the angels. They're holding God's judgment back so that no wind could blow on the earth or on the sea or any tree. Creation's still standing, right? Yes. This is describing something that's happening right now. Then I saw another angel rising up from the east who had the seal of the living God. He cried out in a loud voice to the four angels. He said, don't harm the earth, the sea or the trees until we seal the servants of our God on the foreheads. And I heard the number sealed. I heard the number sealed. And what is that number? 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the Israelites. And then he lists 12 tribes, 12,000 from each tribe. And what do we know about numbers? Numbers are symbols pointing to something. So what in the world is going on here? The number 12 is used throughout the book of Revelation to describe completeness, just like the number four. That number is multiplied by 1,000 for every tribe. Think of it like an exclamation point, okay? John's bringing emphasis to this number. Then that number is multiplied again by 12 for the 12 tribes of Israel. Think of that like all caps. So we got emphasis and extra emphasis on this number. Many read this group as a literal, uh, many read this as a literal group of 144,000 Jewish people who were ethnically descended from these 12 tribes. But just as John heard the voice like a trumpet in Revelation 1, turned and saw a risen and glorified Jesus, so he hears the number of the sealed and turns and sees something different. Look at verse 9. 
After this, I looked. So listen, I heard the number sealed, 144,000 from every tribe in Israel. But then I looked and I saw a vast multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language which no one could number. Is John contradicting himself? No. Which means that when he, when he hears the number, John is telling us about these people, about this group. He's telling us something significant about this group of people. They're standing before the throne with white robes, palm branches in their hands, and crying out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb. So John hears these, these wicked kings and rulers saying, who can stand in the great day of judgment? He looks, he hears this vast group of people. They're identified with the Israelites in the Old Testament as God's chosen people. There's a multitude that no one could number from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Now, why is that comforting? How are the nations depicted in this passage? They're depicted as rebels, which means what? God has ransomed amongst rebels a multitude that no one can number who have given their allegiance fully to the king. Fully to the king. He has saved a group of people from his enemies and he's identified them with his people, the 12 tribes of Israel. And what are they doing before the throne? They are standing, they are singing, they have palm branches in their hands which calls us back to the beginning of Jesus' coming into, the king, the, into Jerusalem to establish his kingdom, awaiting the enthronement ceremony that would be the cross, where he is lifted up above Jerusalem as the king of all kings, though not enthroned in, on a seat, he is enthroned on a cross, and he dies, and he bears a death. And what is that telling us? These palm branches are to signify the victory of the Messiah the victory of the ruling and reigning Messiah, and they are singing, and all the angels stand around the throne along with the elders and the four living creatures calling you back to the heavenly vision from chapters four and five, and they're saying blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and strength to our God forever. Why is that important? Because in the midst of the chaos of the sealed judgments, we can see that when God's judgment comes, we can stand and we can boldly declare that salvation belongs to our God we can see that while the world mocks us, while the world hates us, Christ vindicates us. And in case you disagree with me, the text doesn't leave us to speculate who these people are. One of the elders actually asked John who these people are, and John responds, sir, you know, later in chapter seven. This is verse 13 and 14. And he says, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They washed their robes in blood and made them white in the blood of the lamb. They were vindicated through their suffering. You know, it's fascinating to me. You know, one of the reasons why I think we often try to avoid suffering and mitigate suffering in our life is because we actually don't spend time in the book of Revelation, which tells us comfort comes through suffering. Vindication comes through suffering. Look, look at what he says. They washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. In fact, later in Revelation, speaking of these witnesses, he'll say, you'll know them by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. Because they, did, they stood on the gospel when everything in life pulled them away. While the world calls you a bigot, what chapter seven shows us is that Christ calls you a son and a daughter. While the world calls you judgmental, Revelation 7 tells us that you can rest until he judges. 
while the world withholds opportunity for business or progress for you, Christ promises to give you a new creation. In fact, all creation will one day be under the feet of God's people. While the world shames your reputation, we see in Revelation 7 that Christ washes you pure and gives you a royal status in his kingdom. And while the world accuses you falsely, you can rest assured because Christ will accuse the world rightly. While you suffer for the faith, friends, Christ calls you to persevere. He calls you to stand. And glory is coming. And we must believe, as Revelation says, he will wipe every tear from their eyes. He will guide them to the springs of life. What is Revelation 7 pointing toward? It's pointing toward that last day, that glorious day, when evil will be gone, and you will not even feel a temptation to sin. Can you imagine what that would be like? Imagine waking up and wanting to do nothing but love your Savior and no longer feeling the pull to love yourself to serve yourself over serving others. When you'll no longer work in the heat of the sun and feel the sting of its toil. When you'll no longer think that life has no meaning because you'll be shepherded by the lamb who was slain. While the nations rage, God's will is accomplished. While suffering persists, God promises to protect you. While God judges the earth, he offers redemption. And while the world condemns you, friends, Christ vindicates you. And these are not just statements of possibility. These are promises and a guarantee from the mouth of God himself meant to give you boldness to stand in the midst of opposition so that Christ's name might be glorified in Manunk, the Fieldcrest School District, all the way to the nations. As God continues to save and ransom a people for himself while we wait until he returns. So I think we would do wise to respond like John and Peter, who in Acts chapter four, when they first started getting a taste of what this would be like, prayed this, and now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to, your serv- grant to your servants so that we might continue to speak your word with all boldness, all boldness. You can tell the good news of Christ with confidence because of how God has revealed himself to you in his word. You can know that God is at work in the midst of such suffering because you know how God has revealed himself to you in his word. And you can stand though the nations rage. Kingdoms rise and fall. There's still one king reigning over all. So I will not fear for this truth remains that my God is the ancient of days. None above him, none before him, all of time in his hands. For his throne it shall remain and ever stand. All the power, all the glory, I will trust in his name. For my God is the ancient of days. Father, we thank you that you give us confidence to stand when the world tries to knock us over. Remind us, as Jesus reminded his disciples at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, not to build our foundation on sand, but to build it on the rock. God, that we would build our lives on Christ and therefore stand on Christ while the world causes and produces suffering. God, may we see you at work even in the hardest moments of our life, drawing near to you for help in our time of need. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.